This episode of the Getting Smart Podcast is part of our new Pathways campaign. What is something you used to think that you've changed your mind about? It's time for us to do that with all things learning. Previous Getting Smart campaigns have laid the groundwork of networks, place, purpose, and innovation. Our latest effort, the new Pathways campaign, will serve as a catalyst for unbundling education to allow for new learning models that are sustained by support and guidance and embedded in scalable systems. In partnership with ASA, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Stand Together, and the Walton Foundation, the new Pathways campaign will question education status quo and propose new methods of giving students a chance to experience success in what's next. Find out more at gettingsmart.com backslash new pathways. Paul, why is it time to put human questions back at the heart of human serving institutions? Hmm. You know, Tom, I've been consumed with this question of how we lift people up, right? These are institutions that are supposed to help transform people's lives through education, through better health care, any number of other ways, mental health treatment. Um, and yet they so routinely dehumanize the very people they're meant to serve. And this was the starting question for me. And very painfully, because I love our industry so much, and I know what it meant for me as a student, I see it in higher ed all the time. And it's really what I set out to do is say, look, we can scale. Like we do, right? Higher ed's big. Healthcare is big. K-12 is big. And yet I would argue it isn't successful. Like it isn't working. Our scaling strategy is not working. Um, take a look at, at you know the failures of K-12. Take a look at the fact that America spends more than any other country in the world on healthcare, and yet our results are so much poorer in so many areas. So that so that shows the increase. Like if we don't get the human piece at the heart of this, it's the starting point. Without it, you literally can't be successful. You cannot transform lives if you're outside of relationship. If you don't have a human relationship in the middle of it. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. I'm Tom Vanderark, and I have the pleasure of being joined today by Dr. Paul LeBlanc. He's the president of Southern New Hampshire University. Uh, Paul is the author of two uh, really terrific new books that we're going to talk about today. Uh, one that just came out called Broken, How Our Social Systems Are Failing Us and How We Can Fix Them. Uh, a more policy-oriented book um, called Students First, Equity, Access, and Opportunity, in higher ed. I think, Paul, was this uh, published by Harvard Press? Uh, Harvard Education Press, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, we'll talk about both of these, but uh, you were busy during the pandemic. I have no social life, Tom. This is an abject uh, indictment of my social life during the pandemic. <laughs> um, Paul, Students First is um, the best and, and I think most important uh, description of uh, competency-based education that has been written, certainly about higher education. Um, you, you really believe that our systems have to be, that, that we've, we're trapped in a time-based system and we really have to shift to a, a learning system. Is, that's, is that one of the core messages here? Absolutely. You know, we've built a whole industry and a foundation of the credit hour, which was never intended to be used the way we use it. It's very good at telling us how long someone sits. It's not very good at telling us what someone's learned. 
it's also structural. It has a structural uh, structural inequity about it, and that time is a reflection of privilege. Right, the more privilege you have, the more time you have, or and or the more control over your time. Let me give you a simple example, Tom. If you work in big swaths of the American service industry, uh, restaurant, retail, uh, healthcare, um, travel, hospitality, you may not know what your schedule is next week till Friday. And yet we're asking you to commit to being at a certain place at a certain time, Wednesday at three o'clock in class, right? Um, so so time-based systems are so flawed to my mind, it's a foundation of sand. It also doesn't give us a genuine measure of what students actually know. Um, so we've built a whole industry on very poor assessment practices by and large. So I think, I think um, we can, if we could move to general assessment of student learning through competencies, the mastery of competencies, what can they do with what they know? We can capture better what they bring to the equation before they ever start class with us. We can move them through faster or slower as needs be. We can untether them to schedules that have inequities built into them if that's not best for them. Um, we can say to the world at large, these are the claims we make for our graduates and here's how we know. And that's very powerful. I appreciate the, the detailed look at, um, at assessment and your acknowledgement that it's the hardest work ahead of us, but it, uh, Students First is a, is a beautiful description of why performance assessment is, uh, why it matters in building systems that can really um, back up skill assertions. Um, that seems key to the trust transaction of, of helping people build valuable skills and being able to um, sh share those with, uh, with employers. Yeah, Tom, I think, you know, we tend, you and I feel very comfortable framing competency-based education around skills, but I would argue that um, it's very powerful for skills writ large and not merely the vocational. Because a lot of people want to go directly to what they would call the more vocational. Can you write code? Will it compile? Can you do a process? But in fact, I would argue it's as powerful for the humanities, which has struggled to actually de defend their value quite often. And I say to, to the philosophy department, you should embrace CBE. Your graduates have competencies that companies like McKinsey and Accenture value greatly, but you never talk about them. <laughs> and why not? There's a reason we Accenture and Deloitte recruits from the philosophy departments of fine universities. Yes. Um, you, you, uh, in Students First, you talked about um, schools of theology, using them as an example for, for that answer, uh, for that reason. Yeah, in South Dakota, wonderful example. Paul, what, what this book does a really nice job of is um, helping people, I, I hope particularly policymakers, understand that we've baked time into two constraining conditions, and that's both financial aid and accreditation. And I've, I've watched you for the last almost 20 years operate within these bizarre constraints that we've created, but you make a beautiful argument in here of of why we need a different approach to aid and a different approach to accreditation. Can you summarize those? Yeah, so what's interesting, and I, I learned this um, when I did a little stint at the Department of Ed, but 
you know, the the legislative language in Title IV that allows for direct assessment of student learning. And by the way, imagine this. There's a phrase in there that says, as an alternative to the credit hour, institutions can use direct assessment of student learning. Isn't that the standard you should be embracing? But So we were the first to invoke that standard. But the problem was, while the legislation made possible that, you know, that policy change, that, that approach, none of the underlying administrative rules around financial aid changed. So they're all still tethered to time. And there's a phrase that someone taught me at the department. They said, this is what we call not breathing, not breathing life into the body of the policy. In other words, your administrative rules have to breathe life into the policy change. So, so even though we're all working at interesting CBE approaches, we all have to kind of twist ourselves into pretzels to make, to, to, comply with these time-based rules for financial aid disbursement. So things like satisfactory academic progress, that's a measure of time. How are you defining the credit hour? Even though you're not using the credit hour, what's your equivalency? What are you defining? Um, what's your term definition? That's a time-based question again. And those are all still very much embedded. So I argue for a demonstration project because it's way too big and complex a system to think you can flip a switch and change it overnight. But Demonstration projects are powerful and they can, within the guardrails, within the sandbox you create, they can show the rest of the industry, including the Department of Ed, how we might implement an alternative or a parallel track in which financial aid systems now are matched with and commensurate with the kinds of competency-based models we want to employ. Similarly, so much of quality assurance or accreditation is built on not only the credit hour, but the sort of input model. Right. We've talked about this as well established and what we're really asking for. And I think it unleashes so much innovation. So look at if you ask providers to be crystal clear about the claims for learning and how they know, if you can be really comfortable with that, you can unleash them on all kinds of delivery models. We shouldn't care. Right. Because what matters is yep, your graduates can do it. And we know it. we know it with assurance. So I think it's a real it's a great way to get at innovation and free frames the argument right now. Because right now, if you take a look at the Department of Education, it's dominated by really sort of consumer protection-minded people who, for good reason, they've seen the abuses, they're massive, are really distrustful of innovation. It just looks like more fertile ground for abuse. But if we can say, no, 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 we're talking about very transparent claims and very transparent assessments. You can hold us to those then they can breathe a little bit. That's what we tried to do with the program that I worked on when I was at the department called Equip, but it kind of, again, floundered on the bureaucratic rocks, if you will. Um, Paul, I I assume that you agree with our um, friend Stig Leshley uh, that that we really need a new new, um, crop of uh, accreditors, accreditors focused on outcomes. Is is that at least part of the prescription here? Yeah. In fact, Steve, I think, is, you know, quietly working on trying to stand up perhaps a new accreditor, which hasn't been done for a long time, but one which would be very focused on outcomes. And what I see right now, Tom, what I'm super encouraged by is a couple of, you know, number of big shifts in the ecosystem. So one is um, people like Steve and others really rethinking quality assurance. Then I think we have people quietly working on, could we do a demonstration project? Can we look at alternative ways of dispersing financial aid? These are big parts of the ecosystem that you've evoked. But you also have the external conditions where you now have the workforce, employers saying, wait a minute, degrees may not be the measure. Like we need like 
sub-degrees, micro-credentials, give us skills, make sure they're clear, make sure they're mapped to high need areas. So now you've got the external market is now favoring competencies. And as I describe in the book, um, I was at the CBIN conference last fall, and it just happened again last week. And what we're seeing is this quiet wave of new institutions that are entering into the CBE space. They're showing up a day before for the workshop for new providers saying, how do we do this? And I think we'd be I think people would be surprised at how much CBE is now permeating through the system. So all of these big movements are starting to cohere. I think the time is right. We do too. Um, Paula, I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about high school. Uh, we at Getting Smart have launched a, a new Pathways campaign to try to help uh, the country reimagine pathways to and through uh, post-secondary learning into uh, into opportunity. Can I assume that you that you believe that this focus on competencies and credentials is something that we can and should bring into into high school? Yeah, so absolutely. I think a number of amazingly exciting things happen. Then I think I, then I need to put a warning flag up on the exciting things happening. I think we again we start to break away from sequential time-based notions of when a student is a student and what's you know junior senior high school college and to say you know i've all said to our folks we want to build a competency-based learning ecosystem in which we're as comfortable with a 10th grade student getting her associate's degree or at least getting a whole bunch of college credits under her belt because she's really good at math Right, as we are with a 60-year-old going back and working on competencies to get that micro-credential that allows them to reskill and unlock an opportunity. So I think that's one. And we're already partnering, as you know, Tom, with a number of high schools um, to bring at least you know the associate's degree and a first year of college credit into the high school. So early college models, dual enrollment models are all kind of at play. But the idea that a student could walk across the stage and with the same handshake, get their high school degree in either an associate's degree or a micro-credential that has a job waiting for them on the other side. That's just really exciting, and I think we can get there. Here's the flag, and it's true for K-12, and it's true for higher ed as well. If you do this with integrity and rigor, performance is going to look pretty ugly for a while. We're going to see just how ill-prepared so many college juniors and seniors are when they go through those rigorous assessments. It, it will be, it's the right pain, though. It's the pain that says, now we've got to get our act together. You know, you know this, Tom, 50% of the students who arrive on my campus, as, in, as is true across the country, are not ready to do college-level math, first-year math, or first-year writing. Right. On both fronts. Guidance. Uh, college and career guidance seems more important than ever in this complex landscape. The job market is getting more complex, and there's more post-secondary alternatives, what should college and career guidance look like in high school and then and then in, uh, in college? Yeah, so the fundamental problem for much of high school and a lot of college is that we just don't allow enough time for what's most important. And what's most important is that that guidance counselor and that student have a relationship that allows them, allows that counselor to really know that student in a holistic way and then be able to put in front of that student and his or her family options, more options. And and, and commensurately in college uh, or in, in higher ed, 
um, oftentimes our advisors, our career advisors, our academic advisors, again, face the same challenge. So I cite the number in the book, I think in the California community college system, the average number is uh, something like 1,600 students to an advisor. Now we've, in our own model, which is very advisor centric, um, we, we call them academic advisors. I think of them as life coaches and learning coaches. We're trying to bring our ratio down to under 200 per. And the reason we want to do that is that, A, with the pandemic, we've seen real challenges to persistence and real challenges to the mental health of our learners, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's also the data backs it up. That's happening everywhere, including high school. Um, you can only address that if you are in relationship and conversation with someone. So, so the first thing you have to do is you have to, you have to get the numbers right. You, you can't shortchange um, time in a relationship. That's the most important thing. I, I so appreciate that you um, you frequently quoted uh, in Broken. You you quoted uh, our mutual friend Dennis Litke. Dennis is the one that really taught me that uh, twenty years ago. Paul um, Broken is such a a, a beautiful um, important book. I, I appreciated learning more about you and your journey. Um, and I love that the first chapter of this book um, is called Mattering. Uh, that's really what we've been talking about. But what is that and why is it so important in, in high school and college? Yeah, there's a, wonderful, um, there's a wonderful phrase I took from a military officer who works at West Point who said about soldiers, They'll never care what you know. He's an officer. So they'll never care what you know unless they know that you care. Right? So your leadership, your expertise, your knowledge, it just doesn't matter unless they feel like you care about them. And I think that's like this beautifully succinct sort of notion that you can't build a system that transforms lives, which is what education is about, if the students don't first feel like they're seen, that you know me, that I matter to you. If I walk, I use the example of, so, you know, if I'm walking across a dangerous neighborhood to go to a school in which there's mold on the walls, inadequate heat, textbooks that are 40 years old, where there isn't, you know, adequate food and I'm coming in hungry, and maybe no one knows that I'm hungry, by the way, um, it, where, the, where the teachers are dispirited and the staffing levels are not adequate, I don't feel like I matter to that system. I don't feel like I matter to that place. I probably don't feel like I matter to any person. And I love the work. So, so that's the most important thing. It's different than belonging. Belonging is like affinity. Like you and I belong to organizations that I don't think I matter to them. They, you know, I value my affiliation in the journal they send me and I send them a check every whatever. And, and that's belonging. Um, I can belong to a club. But, but mattering is that sense of when you walk in, it matters to somebody that you're there. You know, I was just sharing this morning with someone talking about K-12 and saying, a very wise principal once said to me, you can tell the health of a school in the first five minutes of the day by watching how students walk in, both to the building and then into their classroom. What does that look like? Um, and a good teacher, a good principal knows like that. These students feel like they're loved. And and I think that's that's the critical piece. You know, Tom, it's not in the book because I wish I had this data point. It was on NPR, but I heard it recently. What's the average length of time an American physician goes before they interrupt their patient? Want to take a guess? Six seconds. Six seconds. And if you remember from Broken, I love this guy, Loris, who 
absolutely transformed the University of Utah healthcare system, the biggest healthcare system in that state. And he he didn't he took them from the bottom in terms of students at a patient satisfaction and happiness to literally the number one healthcare system in the country. He did it in about five or six years. You know, and he did a lot in order to get there, right? He had to break through the culture and the mindset. It's a great story. I'd be happy to share with you if you're interested in hearing it or remind you about it. He had to change the incentive structures. He did a whole bunch of things. But I said, Loris, at the end, what was the key? Like, what was the, the, the takeaway? And he said, patients just wanted to be seen. They wanted to be respected as human beings. They wanted their doctor just to know them. And I think that's really, if you don't have mattering, at the heart of the system, nothing else you do after that will lead to success, in my view. I have a great, I'm sorry, I'll finish because it's like so important. I love Greg Elliott, the sociologist at Brown University, who I've gotten to know over the years and who really got this in my head. But, um, but I think, you know, if, if you, if no one whose life was transformed, no one who's been lifted out of poverty, no one who's been lifted out of trauma cited a policy. No one cited a software system. No one cited a curriculum. Everyone cites a person. It's in it's relationship. I I loved um, you. You point to some important research here. Um, One quote from your book is that mattering is made up of awareness, importance, and reliance. I thought those were interesting dimensions. So awareness feeling a sense of importance, important to the system. And then reliance is an interesting ad. Yeah. So I can, if you're my employee, I can recognize you, right? I can make you feel valued, acknowledged, reasonable pay and good benefits and treat you well. Um, I can acknowledge you in various ways. I can give you development programs. I can give you that sort of little plaque that says you finished the program, et cetera, et cetera. But if you feel that I don't, I don't take your input, that I don't actually give you agency within. So I'm going to go all the way back to Greg Elliott because it's very. This was a real important, nuanced insight for me. Greg taught, you know, Greg's work on mattering started by studying gangs, I think, in Chicago. And the question was, why do people, young people, join gangs with all of the violence and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And what he said was, look at if I wake up every day in a house without any heat no one's made me breakfast no one seems to care that i'm even there no one's seen me off to school and i come home to a house that's equally dysfunctional i don't feel like i matter in that there's no mattering in that family i don't matter to anybody and then i walk across a unsafe neighborhood to get to a school that i described to you earlier no heat bad books mold on the walls the spirit teachers i don't feel like i matter that system and if every encounter with the police is one full of suspicion and aggression it's lack of mattering, maybe even hatred. Gangs make sense. It's the one place where you belong, right? You're part of this. We will kill for you. That's how much you matter. But the last point to the point you just raised, and we have expectations of you. Mattering is a two-way street. It's a relationship, right? We will have expectations of you. And I think one of the cruelest things that I've seen in education is when faculty impose the penalty of low expectation. You matter to me so little that I don't actually going to, I'm not going to ask very much of you. I'm not going to, you know, right? so teachers that have mattered most to me, the ones who have been the greatest influence on me, demanded a lot from me. 
because they cared, right? Because the second piece of that book, the next chapter, is about aspiration, helping people dream big dreams. And it, and and the poverty of aspiration can be as debilitating as the poverty of finance in some ways. And the people who believe in you. So I talked to Matt Beal, who's the head of child and adolescent psychology at Georgetown. He's a good friend. I said, Matt, why do some kids make it? Like, what is the resiliency that pulls people up and out? He said, it's usually three things. It's complicated, obviously, but if I ever sort of overly simplify it for the purposes of my book, at least, three things. They have some passion you can hook into. Doesn't matter what it is, basketball, fashion, music, something that you can hook into. Second is they have some vision that there's a better normal out there. Ideally, they've had a year of normal in their past, but they've had exposure. I describe a kid who came to us from the poorest neighborhood of Boston in the most challenging circumstances, like out of the wire, right? No father, drug-addicted mother, brother in a wheelchair from a drug shooting, in and out of public housing, kicked out, blah, blah, blah. He was bussed out to a white suburb of Boston in the Metco program. And he looked around and said, wow, your house doesn't have to look like crap. Actually, you can have a house. And this is what he had a vision. He never experienced it, but he had a vision. But Matt would say the third thing is the most important piece, that there'd be one person who believes you're better than this, who believes in you, who says, Tom, you have such a great future and it's not here. And, and, and you don't even believe that yet. And all of a sudden, they put, and I had that as a working class immigrant kid. No one in my neighborhood even went to college. But I had a teacher who believed in me, Mrs. Collins. I spoke at a retirement party not that, not so many years ago. Um, and she just had this belief that I could be in a better world. Paul, this book, um, the third chapter is on the power of stories. Um, I feel like you, some during the pandemic, discovered or re discovered, I know you're, a, you're an English prophet at heart, but you rediscovered the power of stories and that really comes through in a beautiful way. But what, what does that have to do with building better public systems? Why, what's the importance of the power of stories? Well, you know, Tom, this is a book and to some extent written by somebody who leads a big organization in an industry that I care deeply about. And it's written to some extent for people who lead systems and lead organizations. And I think I fall, I fell into the old cliche that CEOs are kind of the storytellers in chief, right? It's our job to tell our organization's story, to inspire people, to get the balance. And it is, those things are true. But what I realized was that if we really want to improve our systems, we have to be collectors of stories and we have to be open to the stories that we don't like, that don't fit our narrative, that make us uncomfortable. Because it's in those stories that we find the places we're letting people down, where we're failing, where we're not as good as we like to pretend we are. And that's where you make your improvements, right? You know this. Most of your best learning, my best learning has come when we've stumbled. And I tried in the book to share my mistakes, <laughs> for good or bad, because they, they were important learning opportunities for me. And I think that's true in, in, as an institution. I'm going to go back to the University of Utah healthcare system. I tell the story because it's so powerful, which is that Loris, who was the CEO's wife, had an unexpected attack of kidney stones, which is apparently just so painful. He took her to the, one of his hospitals, and she proceeded to have a terrible experience, a dehumanizing experience. He thought, I stopped him, and I said, wait a minute, Loris, did they know who she was? And he said, yeah, I'm standing right there. I'm the CEO of one of my hospitals. So anyway, he, to his great credit, in a kind of act of radical responsibility, said, this is my fault, 
right? I lead this organization. I, I, I build this system. This is my fault. And he went to the department that collects patient feedback. And what he learned was that they were giving him a lot of data, but they were averages, which means averages obscure the worst cases. So he said, give me the worst. And he read them. This is a remarkable, I don't know if you remember this, Tom. I think it's a remarkable thing he did. He sent out a video crew for those who were willing to share those stories. And he collected those stories without telling anyone, high production. And then he brought his whole clinical staff into a huge auditorium, closed the doors, turned on the lights, and played it. And he said, he was tearing up as he told me this in the interview. He said people still, they were crying. And they said, this isn't us. And he said, this is exactly us. This is us. We did this. And he had to sort of break through. He collected the stories and shared the stories, which were not the narrative in the University of Utah system's healthcare brochures in their commercials on local television. And I thought it was really, really powerful. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was share my stories, SNHU's stories of where we get it wrong, because I don't think we do that enough. Like, you know, you all, you and I have been to enough academic conferences where we talk to leaders, how's everything going? Great, just great. Everything's going great. You're like, really? Like, can it be going that great? <laughs> so I'm trying to be a little bit vulnerable in the book, I guess. It It's interesting that you... You dove into this book with a really interesting driving question, and and I believe that was, can higher ed love its students? I actually said, can, can it learn to love its students again? And then my wife said, did it ever? I was like, yeah. yeah. I felt like I had, I had an experience where I felt like I was loved. <laughs> but that's a beautiful driving question, a provocative one, right? It, it's the... It's the so it brings up the hardest word, which is the L word. And the hardest chapter for me to write was the final chapter, which was about the responsibility of individual leaders, because systems don't happen organically. Systems are designed. We lead systems. We can change systems. Um, and, and the need to do that from a place of love, which is a word that we don't use very often in leadership and in management theory, et cetera. But I don't think you can do the work of systems I'm talking about if you don't love the people you serve and the people who work in the system. Because I think too often we forget how dehumanizing these systems are to the people who work in them, not just the people who come to them for help. Love is the opposite of fear. Um, and I, I loved how in the last chapter you said it's not enough to be a nonprofit organization. We have to be a for love organization. Slightly corny, I know. <laughs> but I, yeah. And if you build your incentive systems, your reward systems, the things you value most uh, for that, which is not around the care and the transformation of student lives, then you're something else. And we need universities to do other things. I get it. We need them to do research and we need universities to be the economic engines of their communities, just as we need hospitals to do those things as well. But, but our fundamental reason for existing is to transform lives for the good of our society and for the good of our citizens. And I think you can only, the, the great lesson I learned from Matt Steinfeld at Yale, at Jessica Benjamin, noted feminist psychologist at NYU, and my own experience is that 
when you do this from a place of love for those you serve, which means you take them for all their messiness and their foibles and all, right? Like my kids drive me crazy sometimes. I don't love them a bit less. Um, when you start from that place, then I think you, you, you have the possibility of doing genuinely good work, transformative work. And systems have to, if systems are going to, to sur- embrace that notion, then we have to flip the way we build scale systems, which is today we use an industrial model, I think very much shaped by capitalism, by short-term reward, by things like the cost of delivery of goods, et cetera, et cetera, to say, how do I automate as much as possible? How do I standardize as much as possible? How do I segment as much as possible? How do I do repeatable processes as much as possible and drive out the human as much as I can? Because humans are expensive and messy and time consuming. And instead, I would flip it and I would say, how do I put those messy, powerful, transformative human relationships at the center and then automate the hell out of everything else that doesn't matter? So I mentioned a conversation with somebody who works in K-12. and She said to me, you know, I've heard teachers say, wait, you want me to like love my students? Are you kidding? You're looking at my day. Do you see what I have to get done? This is crazy. Like you're asking for the impossible, the Herculean. And what I would say is you're absolutely right. You can't. We've built a system that doesn't leave space for what I'm asking you to do now. We've got to flip it. We've got to say, what do you need? What amount of time do you need? What kind of transactions, what kind of engagement and relationship building do you need? And then let's take everything humanly possible off your plate from everything else to make that happen. I think that's that's really how we have to rethink the building of systems of scale for that that sort of you know genuinely humanize and lift people up. Your your book broken. Um, it includes a lot of stories of organizations that have done at least some of this at scale in in colleges, in healthcare, um, uh, even in corrections, in the the justice uh, system. So, your I, I think the takeaway is we can and must build scaled institutions, um, human delivery system institutions um, that that put people, that put the human at the center. Is that that the takeaway? Yeah. And we have the models. This isn't, this isn't sort of pie in the sky sort of thinking. I love the example of our health, for example, um, later became one medical. And this is so, I wish this had happened while the book was still being written because Alexander Packard, the CEO of IOR Health, did a remarkable job really rethinking the use of healthcare coaches, min- counterintuitively minimizes the amount of time you get with a doctor, with clinical staff, maximizes the time you get with a healthcare coach, has much better results as a, right? So, and now he's in not only in multiple states, but his company, his healthcare system was acquired by One Medical, which was just acquired by Amazon. Amazon didn't buy it for a quirky little non-scalable work, right? Amazon's seeing what's possible there. So that's a great example. Loris runs the largest healthcare system in Utah. Um, he did it. He made that the number one performing healthcare system in the country in terms of how patients felt about the way they were treated and humanized. Um, there are lots of wonderful examples. There's an example, a small example, but a company that's doing work in opioid treatment, right, which has just afflicted our country in terrible ways with results two to three times better than the industry average. 
But the way they do it is by shifting the focus of care to the counselors. Why? Because counselors know you. They're in the sessions with you. And they had to persuade, and all of these innovators had to shift the way the money moves within their systems. So in that last example, health insurance companies will pay for drug testing all day long. I can get you tested every day if you're a client, Tom, and I will make money. Like my bottom line looks better as a result because it's an income source for me. I get my, I get, I get my piece of the action. It's not, it doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't make you any better. In fact, it's pretty dehumanizing. You don't trust me like I told you I'm not using. I mean, you're testing me again. And on the other hand, insurance companies don't like to pay for too many counseling sessions. They had to persuade the insurance company to flip that by showing them that they could have better results and have less repeat, right? So it's just, it's, it, it can be done. That's part of the optimism of the book. I, uh, I said before we started recording that I appreciate the optimism in the book. Um, we hope everybody listening gets and reads uh, both of these books. Um, Students First, it's a prescription for, I would say, secondary and post-secondary learning. It's a great case for competency-based learning and why we need policies that support it. Um, Broken, it's an evocative book. It's about love. It's about um, creating public systems that put people uh, back at the center. Paul, both of these books are real gift and we appreciate the gift of your time today thank you so much tom and thank you for uh, the, the warm praise for the books um it's it, it, these are really distillations of learning from colleagues like you and so many others i just get to be the storyteller but the storyteller is a pretty good role too i i love the uh, i love the aspect of story story comes through in in a couple ways one it's the it's it's listening to people's stories so i appreciate that but i also think we're at a time now where we're thinking about story as the it's the mental model that we have about the world that we live in. And, and so I think that the power of story of sort of understanding your own story, listening to other people's story and, um, and, and getting clear about the story that you tell yourself about the world that we live in is, uh, is more important than ever. And your book was a great reminder of that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it, Tom. Thanks to Mason Pasha, our producer, for making this all possible for the whole Getting Smart team. Uh, Until next time, keep learning, keep leading, and keep innovating for equity. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.